The future of orthodontics is evolving and changing every day. But although the way to achieve practice growth has changed, there's never been a better time to be an orthodontist. Let's get into the minds of industry leaders, forward-thinking orthodontists, and technology insiders to learn how they see the future of the orthodontic specialty. How will digital orthodontics, artificial intelligence, clear aligner therapy, remote monitoring, in-house printing, and other innovations change the way you practice? Join your hosts, Dr. Leon Klempner and Amy Epstein, each month as they bring you insights, tips, and guest interviews focused on helping you capitalize on the opportunities for practice growth. And now, welcome to the golden age of orthodontics with the co-founders of People and Practice, Dr. Leon Klempner and Amy Epstein. Have you ever had a new patient consult where the patient has just been treated by a direct-to-consumer company and now they're interested in retreatment with you? You're interested in learning maybe how not to get sued? That seems like an important thing to learn. Um, yep. Or speaking of teledentistry, uh, you know, are you interested in understanding the status of teledentistry as it is today and other new technologies, specifically from the lens of the AAO? Welcome to the golden age of orthodontics. <laughs> I'm Dr. Leon Klempner, board certified orthodontist, part-time faculty member at the uh, ortho department uh, at Harvard. And I am also the CEO of People in Practice. And I'm Amy Epstein. I have an MBA in marketing and 20 years of PR experience. And we co-founded People in Practice together about a decade ago. Today, we're really happy to have back on the podcast, Trey Lawrence as our special guest. He is the VP and general counsel for the AAO, and he leads the organization's advocacy and the legal teams. Before his past four years at the AAO, he practiced law in a large firm for over 18 years, concentrating on litigation and regulatory law. He has a master's degree from Harvard and received his law degree from Washington University. We love to have Trey on this podcast and generally, you know, every once in a while we're calling him as well because we know he's passionate about the legal, the ethical, and also the regulatory issues around teledentistry and other emerging technologies, dental monitoring comes to mind here, and that we, we feel that these technologies are the future of orthodontics. So we really like to keep a close tie to Trey and get his perspective often. Um, and we know he's also working hard to position the AAO, uh, the AAO as a leader in these areas. So we are very happy to uh, invite Trey back. Thanks for being here. Absolutely. Thank you, guys. It's always a pleasure and looking forward to talking about some of these issues today. All right, Trey, let's get right to it then. Um, let's talk litigation. So we're hearing from our clients. I talk to orthos on a daily basis, as I'm sure you do as well. And they're seeing an uptick in patients coming in for either an evaluation or actual retreatment of ortho after they've been treated uh, via direct-to-consumer, mail order, whatever you want to call it. Uh, so tell us from a legal standpoint, what are some of the things orthodontists should consider if they want to retreat a patient in this situation and they don't want to get sued? 
Yeah, so that is a great question. And as you know, unfortunately, it's a very common question. And just in case anybody has that question, if you want to feel like you have good company, um, the AO actually did a public uh, policy survey last year where we surveyed AO members and asked them about this question. We said how, one of the questions was, have you seen a patient that treated with a mail order or a direct-to-consumer company, which we're defining as a company that did not see the patient in person before beginning treatment? And then the follow-up question was, if so, how often have you seen such patients? And so not surprisingly, as you indicated, Dr. Klempner, by your question, we found out that 77% of the respondents in the survey said that they had seen a patient that treated with one of these companies for retreatment. And of that 77%, 61% said that they see those kind of patients at least quarterly, if not weekly or monthly. So if you extrapolate that out over the total number of AAO members, that's a pretty significant number. And uh, we did the statistical analysis on the survey. We had a plus or minus six percentage point, a margin of error on that survey. So we feel pretty good about the results there. So suffice to say, this is indeed a very common scenario. And we, as, as you mentioned, you guys, we at the AO both get that question all the time. We wanna help these patients. We've heard the, the rumors about lawsuits and people getting sued and people getting nasty letters from some of these companies. And then beyond that, the, as a, as an orthodontist, you don't want to be held responsible for um, treatment that somebody else has provided that was not quality treatment. Obviously, you want to take responsibility for your own treatment, but you don't want to be on the hook legally for some harm that a patient has experienced because of treatment that somebody else has provided. So all of those things are reasons why people should be concerned about this question, but I think the good news is, is it's not prohibitive, it doesn't mean that you can't help these patients. You certainly can. And, you know, many, many orthodontists do. You just need to take some steps to minimize your legal risk in doing this. So ultimately, I think, first of all, the most important consideration is ultimately you got to use your own discretion. You got to use your own judgment. Am I comfortable taking this case? What is the, what's the treatment that this patient apparently received previously? What is the harm that they experienced? Do I feel like I still have an acceptable chance of providing a successful treatment outcome for this patient? And if the answer to that question is yes, then you move forward. So then how do you move forward? Well, again, the, the consideration that you're trying to keep in mind here is you only wanna be responsible legally for anything that results from the treatment you provided, not from treatment that somebody else provided. The good news is, that the law agrees with you in that, you know, the law is only going to hold you responsible for harm that is proximately caused by treatment that you provide. It's not going to hold you uh, responsible legally for harm that was proximately caused by treatment that somebody else or another company provided. The challenge is going to be demonstrating that to the decision maker, to the court, to a dental board. So how do you do that? The first big step and probably the most important step is on doing that is what uh, another another AL member, Dr. Dalian Featheringham, I have to give her credit for this phrase, but she coined it as immaculate documentation. And so that basically means whatever possible records you can take when you, when you first see that patient before you decide to move forward with treatment, every possible imaging that you can do, 
photographs, all of that. You want to you know make sure that you have as thorough of a record as possible to document the condition that the patient was in when they came to see you and to document as much as you can anything that the patient has experienced or any condition that they currently have that's a result of that former treatment. So immaculate documentation, do everything you possibly can to record the condition that you're in. Because all of that, again, all of that's gonna be crucial if you have to demonstrate to a jury or to a dental board that the harm that the patient's complaining of is harm that resulted from prior treatment and then not from the treatment that you're providing. So a second big step is gonna be the informed consent process. This is obviously, it's always an important part of any kind of treatment, but it is particularly important in these situations. So first of all, right out of the gate on that, I wanna hammer on a phrase that we use all the time at the AO legal department, that's informed consent as a process and not a form. Because I know in, in the ordinary course of routine treatment, it can become very easy to let that informed consent just become another piece of paperwork that you have your staff help you to get the patient to fill out, you know, with all these other forms they're completing and just kind of shuffle it through. It's really not intended to be that, even in normal cases. It's really intended to be an interaction between the doctor and the patient where the, where the patient is informed of the risk of their treatment, possible side effects, and then the benefits of their treatment. And then based on all that, they make the decision to move forward. So that is especially important in these cases where patients treated with a direct-to-consumer company and maybe didn't get care that met the standard of care or uh, you know, possibly experienced some actual harm from it because you really got to make sure that the patient is clear in their understanding of maybe what, first of all, what conditions they're bringing into the treatment, some, you know, if they've experienced some kind of a harm from this direct-to-consumer treatment, or secondly, you also need to make sure that the patient has reasonable expectations about what it is or isn't possible to do through treatment because it may be, in fact be the case that because of something that was done previously, um, you may not be able to get 100% of the results that you would ordinarily get in that kind of case. You know, Maybe you can only get them 80 or 90% of the way there. And so you wanna make sure that the patient is clear and understanding that and then makes a decision to move forward to treat with you based on that understanding. And so that's where that informed consent form is really a crucial uh, piece of that process to make sure that you've documented all of that, that you've got all that information there, the patient acknowledges it and signs it. And then finally, you know, when we talk about these things, there's, there's no, we say this in the law all the time about lots of things that are not limited just to dentistry or orthodontic practice, but there's no way to 100% guarantee you can't be sued. I mean, people can still sue you. What you're really looking to do is minimize your legal risk in case you are sued and then may minimize uh, or maximize your chances of prevailing on that claim if you are sued. And so that's where all of these things come in. You know, there's, there's no magic step, unfortunately, that I can give orthodontists that say, treat one of these cases and do this, and you have a 100% chance of not getting sued. But hopefully through documentation, through a, a, a very um, energetic and robust uh, informed consent process and making sure the patient's clear on what they expect and, and knowing where they are when they come in, you can hopefully minimize the chance of getting sued and then certainly uh, put your best case forward if you are sued or you do get a dental board complaint in that situation. Mm -hmm. That's uh, super helpful, and I really like the three-step um, 
you know, take on how to minimize risk. So that, you know, that's really minimizing risk for the, the orthodontist who's seeing a patient who came to them. Maybe there's, they're just not happy. Maybe in the worst case, there's actually harm done, but you know, what about it, uh, helping out the patient? Uh, are there governmental organizations or offices that can help them? Um, and I guess also, is there risk in getting involved? Should the orthodontist get involved in trying to help patients reach the right people uh, for recourse in these cases? Yeah, so the good news is that there are definitely government agencies and, and authorities that have jurisdiction over these issues that can definitely help the patient out if they've experienced every either one of those things, either they were actually harmed by the treatment or they just didn't get the result that they were promised. From the treatment, the challenges, there's really two challenges there. Number one, it's that most patients have no idea who those people are. And then the second challenge is that even if you, as the orthodontist, you know who they are, you know who to direct the patient to, and you want to help the patient, again, you may have seen the headlines where orthodontists have tried to speak out on these kind of issues and they get a cease and desist letter from one of these companies threatening to sue them and you know threatening all kinds of horrible things so again it's it's knowing knowing the right course of action and then taking that course of action in a way that minimizes your risk so the what of what to do here is to know that the agencies or the authorities that have jurisdiction there's going to be two primary ones in any particular state it's going to be your state dental board and your state attorney general now it's important to recognize the difference between those two and the areas they specialize in the state dental board obviously has jurisdiction over the clinical issues and then state attorneys general almost every state will have a consumer protection division and they're going to have jurisdiction over obviously consumer protection issues so how that breaks down is the a patient who's treated with one of these companies and either was harmed or didn't get the result they wanted there are certainly clinical issues there there's a dentist or orthodontist that's supposed to be in charge of supervising the case who falls under the jurisdiction of the dental board and the dental board can consider those clinical issues and then the patient is also a customer they're a consumer that that paid money for something that they were expecting to get and they didn't get it and so that's where the attorney general comes in and so when you're helping a patient work through these issues, it's important to remember what the focus of those two groups is, are, that they have a little different focus, that the dental board is gonna be focused on the clinical issues, the AG's office is not gonna be focused on the clinical issues so much, but they're gonna view the patient as a consumer who paid money for a service and didn't get what they were promised. Mm -hmm. So as you're, as you're helping these patients, what you do wanna be careful about, you wanna make sure that you don't do anything that creates an impression that you coerced or kind of force the patient into making a complaint. So for that purpose, it's definitely better to ask questions. If the patient's talking about, you know, something that they're not happy with the treatment or they experience harm, you say, hey, you know, are you aware that the state dental board has jurisdiction over these issues? Are you aware that the consumer, there's a consumer protection division of the AG's office that has jurisdiction over these issues? Would you, the patient, be interested in filing a complaint with either one of these. If the patient says yes or says maybe, you know, tell me more about it, then that's your invitation then to provide more information and help out. And then from that point, 
it's fairly easy. Nearly every state dental board and almost all of the state attorneys general have online complaint forms. They're very easy to find. Um, the AAO actually has links to the dental board's complaint forms on the AAO member website under the advocacy tab, but you can find them online very easily. The forms are pretty simple to fill out. And at that point, again, you don't want to force the patient in any way, but you can offer your assistance to the patient. You know, would you like me to help you fill these out? Would you like me to give you the website address? Those kind of things, and then help the patient as much as they indicate that they want to be helped. And then the final piece to this is the, again, back to that concern about getting sued and how do you as an orthodontist talk about these issues in a way that you minimize your liability. Uh, the, the, the most important thing I want to point you to is the AAO actually has a resource that's specifically dedicated to this topic. If you go to the website, ortho, O-R-T-H-O, facts, F-A-C-T-S dot org, there are lots of resources related to direct to consumer mail order issues, but we have a resource up there. It's called Educating Patients and the General Public about mail order orthodontic treatment. And that really provides you a step-by-step -step guide about how to talk about these issues in any context, whether it's just educating patients or the public generally, or in this case, helping them fill out a dental board complaint uh, to do it in a way that minimizes your legal risk. And so mm -hmm. I encourage everybody to take a look at that resource. But just real quickly, the, the general pointers there are stick to facts that are within your personal knowledge. So you want to only make statements that reflect what you know or have observed personally. So certainly, you know, internet rumors, something that you saw on the ortho social media groups is not something that should be repeated there. And then two, if a patient tells you something, you just need to state that as patient informed me or patient stated, you know, patient stated they treated with a particular company, patient stated that they were not seen in person before beginning treatment, those kind of things, but don't state that mm -hmm. as your, a fact unless you have personal knowledge. And then similar to that, really be careful about statements of opinion. Um, you know, it, it may in fact be the case that the patient received really crummy treatment, you don't want to say that the patient received really crummy treatment. You can say basically the same thing through saying patient reported, you know, this and this, they weren't seen in person, they didn't have x-rays performed before beginning treatment. Patient presented with all of these conditions and those are all the things that you're observing and then it will require this treatment to correct what I'm observing. So now you've you've basically said they received crummy condition or treatment or they're in a bad condition when they came to see you, but you're not saying that as a statement of opinion. You're saying that as a fact. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's great that the AO has a resource for this because it it comes up a lot, and uh, I, you know it's good to be able to uh, do it thoughtfully, help patients thoughtfully, and take a you know proactive approach to. Um, mitigating risk when when helping patients in this situation because it's coming up a lot and uh so orthofacts.com right dot org yep orthofacts.org yes dot org all right we'll make sure to get that right when we distribute our podcast we'll, we'll put a link along with it because i think that's really helpful so um traditionally on this podcast we invite our callers and our listeners to submit questions and so we have one today for you, Trey, and we're going to go ahead and play it for you now. Hey, this is Dr. Ed Davis from Columbia, South Carolina. Obviously patients who've experienced problems from mail order companies, 
are going to want a refund from that company. I've heard that many of these patients are told they must get a letter from an orthodontist uh, to provide an evaluation to get that refund. But not surprisingly, with all the news stories about lawsuits and the threats of lawsuits, orthodontists may be nervous to actually write this letter. Should they be nervous? Thank you very much. Uh, so that is a question that we at the AO get frequently from members. In fact, that may be the number one question that we get about retreatment of direct-to-consumer cases from members. So it definitely happens. Now, what's what's puzzling to us is we don't see that every time we've heard that patients sometimes get uh, refunds without being required to, to provide those kind of letters. But many times um, the companies and one company in particular is very insistent on requiring that kind of a letter from an orthodontist before they will give a patient a refund. So the things that we tell members that have that question, number one, what's really important to realize as part of the background on this question is that that letter is not some kind of a legal requirement for the company to provide a refund like that. So, you know, you, you can speculate as to why the companies insist on a letter like that, but it's not a legal requirement. So I think step one is if the patient is not pushed, you know, the patient may just well assume that that's some kind of a legal requirement because they, they just don't know any better. So step one is to let the patient know this is not a legal requirement. That company can give you a refund without getting a letter like this and so just have the patient push back, have the patient say, you know, I, I'm not comfortable providing you the company with that letter, but I'm still legally entitled to my refund. Give me my refund. So ideally that would work. I, I don't know, you know how often that will work, but that's definitely step one to try. And then if the patient does try that and the company still comes back and says, no, we insist on getting a letter like that, then again, this is a situation where you've got to trust your own you know, clinical judgment, your own level of risk tolerance. But what we hear from most members is they do want to help these patients out. Certainly, if they're going to provide retreatment for the patient, they also want to help the patient get that refund. And so I would say if if you're comfortable writing that letter, then the exact same things that I just talked about a minute ago about helping the patient file the dental board complaint and that resource that's up on orthofacts.org about educating patients, I would stick to those exact same pointers. So when you write that letter, you only state things as fact that are in your personal knowledge and observation. If something, if you know something because the patient reported it to you, then just make sure you say patient states or patient indicates something like that. Um, certainly don't include any kind of you know hearsay or rumor or online uh, diagnosis or anything like that. It's all going to be information that's in your personal knowledge. And the reason that's so important is because when these companies threaten lawsuits, what they're really threatening is a defamation claim. And a defamation claim, the, the legal elements are, I said something false about you and you were financially harmed by it. So therefore I'm legally liable. Well, obviously a, a major defense to a defamation claim is the truth of the matter stated. So that's why it's so important to demonstrate factually any kind of a statement that you make. So if you make a statement in a letter like that and it's factually true, you've got factual evidence personally to verify that statement that you're making in that letter, then that should serve as a major defense. I mean, that should absolve you of any liability from that defamation claim. But so similar to that, don't state opinion um, and 
make sure that you're just sticking to what you observe, the, the condition of the patient when they come in, what the patient represented to you, phrase it that way, and then the treatment that the patient needs. Going forward, again, that, that won't 100% guarantee you're not going to get sued, but that should really provide a defense to any kind of a claim. And hopefully, even if you get the threat of a, a letter, you know, the cease and desist type letter, you can say, hey, everything I said in my letter was true. I've got factual evidence to verify it. So you don't have a claim against me. Thank you. Have a nice day. <laughs> okay, that's great advice, Trey. And uh, I'm sure our listeners are taking uh, copious notes and, and paying attention because these things come up uh, frequently. Um, I want to broaden the scope of the conversation just a little bit and uh, move towards uh, the topic of teledentistry in general. Um, I'm a very active member of a lot of the Facebook ortho groups. Um, I talk to orthos all the time on, on Zoom and on the phone. And um, this concept of teledentistry uh, is uh, very controversial. And there are a lot of orthodontists that dig in and feel that any form of teledentistry or remote monitoring uh, falls under the category of, um, you know, mail order or direct to consumer, and 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 they feel that it's it's bad for the specialty, it's bad for the uh, for the public, and um, you know, we people in practice have never felt that way um, with with certain parameters. We've always uh, believed that uh, it's important for orthodontists to embrace new technology, and we're moving into a digital world. And so, you know, in, in our opinion, we've always viewed um, the importance of bringing a patient in for an in-house consultation, taking a set of records and having a uh, conversation, uh, an informed consent conversation about the various options, the pluses and minuses, and then allow the patient to make a decision. And then following that, if there can be some efficiencies both uh, from the practice's perspective and the patient convenience side of it by using um, some form of remote monitoring in order to achieve the result with fewer visits that that was a good use of teledentistry. So I'm just curious now, uh, what, what's the AAO position? Um, what are your thoughts? Um, where is this going? Uh, tell us what you think. Yeah, so I, I think you hit on a lot of the, the key points in this discussion. And I would say organizationally as a whole, I think the AAO is very much in alignment with, with what you just said about people in practices position on this, because I, I, I'm totally acknowledge that there are some de debates among practitioners about, you know, how much teledentistry to use, is it ever appropriate, those kind of things. And those are, clinical discussions and there's a time and a place for those kind of discussions and thankfully i'm just the lawyer i'm not the orthodontist so i don't have to get into that what i'm focused on is the advocacy side of it and on the advocacy side of it the ao is very strongly taking the position that we want to encourage and allow for what we call the legitimate uses of teledentistry while protecting patients against the illegitimate uses. And, and to do that, to create a framework then that individual practitioners can adopt or not adopt the legitimate uses to the extent that they're comfortable with, you know, and again, recognizing that there's some level of disagreement among practitioners about exactly how much, 
But we, we have to focus more on the overall framework, the entire universe of practicing orthodontists and allow the ones who are using it in ways that we believe are legitimate ways to, to take advantage of that while protecting patients against the illegitimate uses. So when we talk about legitimate or illegitimate uses, again, it's Dr. Klempner, it's very similar to the things that you just mentioned. Um, we believe that there's a baseline standard of care that any utilization of teledentistry should not go below. And those are the kind of things that you just mentioned, the in-person consultation and physical examination before you start treatment, the uh, x-rays and other imaging that you need to do, which of course can only be done in person uh, before you start treatment, and then the informed consent process and make sure that that doesn't become just some fine print that's buried in an online form. And so when we talk about this issue in the advocacy context, those are the kind of pieces that we focus on because we believe that those pieces are the baseline standard of care that will protect patients and will allow orthodontists who are legitimately using this technology to, to use it. Because we do, I mean, you hit on it again, there are definite advantages to the legitimate uses. There's increase in access to care. I mean, just starting treatment in general, uh, the teledentistry can increase the amount of interaction between the dentist or the orthodontist and the patient during treatment. And then it also can be uh, a benefit to lowering the cost of treatment. And so I think those are all strong patient mm -hmm. advantages reasons that the AAO promotes the legitimate uses. But on the flip side, as, as everybody unfortunately probably is aware, there are certain companies that see teledentistry as a way to reduce the involvement, the direct involvement of the dentist or orthodontist. And of course, the dentist or the orthodontist is the most expensive component in orthodontic treatment. And so that's a way that they can cut costs and gain a competitive advantage. And that's, those are the kind of things that the AAO has been very active in advocacy to try to protect against. So mm -hmm. the states at this point in time are all over the place on this. There's some states that have adopted very robust, um, very prescriptive teledentistry statutes that are very protective of patients. There's dental boards that have done the same thing. There's other states that have hardly touched the subject at all or dental boards that haven't even begun to address it yet. So we, uh, the AAO, our slogan this year is 22 and 22, where we plan by the end of 2022 to have been active in 22 states on teledentistry. Um, and, and that's at both the legislative level, trying to get statutes passed, you know, amendments into the dental practice acts in states that address teledentistry, um, get dental boards to adopt regulations. Many times when legislatures will pass a, a teledentistry bill that amends their Dental Practice Act. They don't really get into the clinical specifics and that's where we then have to work with the dental board to try to get those pieces put in place. So the kind of things like we're talking about that if you're going to do orthodontic treatment or if you're going to do any kind of other irreversible dental treatment that you have to have an in-person exam and you have to take x-rays, those kind of things before um, you start treatment. We want the informed consent process to be meaningful where there's an actual opportunity for live interaction between the doctor and the patient. It's not just an online form. And we want the patient, we want to make sure that the patient has meaningful contact information for their doctor. So that's a, a real office phone number, a real practice address where they can actually get in touch with the doctor that's supposedly supervising their treatment instead of just having like a 1-800 customer service number where they talk to customer service reps instead of actually being able to talk to the orthodontist or the dentist. 
So we are working on those things. Unfortunately, as most people are probably aware, complicating that is there's one company in particular that when dental boards have tried to take action in these areas, this company has sued some of those state dental boards. Uh, that combined with the, the Federal Trade Commission has also taken a position that they are very pro-teledentistry to the point that they see almost any regulation on teledentistry as a bad thing even where you know there are legitimate clinical reasons supporting that legis or that regulation mm -hmm. on teledentistry, and so the FTC has gotten involved in several of those lawsuits against state dental boards that have tried to regulate in this area. And it, in fact, in one in the state of Alabama, actually entered into a consent order that prohibits the Alabama State Dental Board from regulating and teledentistry for the next 10 years. So those lawsuits and those the FTC involvement are certainly hurdles that the AAO is having to push against in our advocacy activity in this area. Um, we're certainly working on both those pieces, especially the FTC. We are really trying to bring to the a the FTC's attention the clinical concerns. You know, these are not just regulations for the purpose of excluding some companies from the market or anything like that but there are legitimate clinical reasons why a patient needs to be seen in person before you start treatment needs to have x-rays done and those kind of things and make sure that the ftc is aware of that so all of those things are the the kind of the several categories of areas that aao is active in on teledentistry at both the state and the federal level mm -hmm. trey the the um teledentistry caught people off guard because all of a sudden the illegitimate uses were picking up speed, right? And so um, are there other emerging technologies that you see on the horizon that could likewise be used both legitimately but also illegitimately and, and would pose some concern? Yeah, I, I think there definitely are. And it's, a, again, it's a good with the bad because in the two in particular that I'll point to are AI and robotics. I think there are going to be a lot of incredibly productive, incredibly beneficial applications for both AI and robotics moving forward. And again, the AAO wants to support those legitimate uses of those kind of technologies. But in just the same way that in the orthodontic space, um, teledentistry has been used as a cost-cutting means by some companies that you know cut the the human doctor out of the process. Uh, we're also very afraid that there are going to be similar companies that do the same thing as the AI and the robotics technology develops. And so that's what we're we're trying to be very proactive. We're trying to stay ahead of those technologies and keep up with what's going on out there on, on the industry side, so that we can then go to the dental boards and the legislatures and the federal agencies ahead of time and say, hey, these are the technologies that are coming. These are the legal, the ethical, the regulatory challenges that we see are going to be associated with these technologies. So let's let's get ahead of the issue. Let's get some regulations in place that protect patients, promote the legitimate uses and get all of that done before this technology just explodes on the market. And then all of a sudden it's too late and everybody's trying to play catch up like I think they did with right. teledentistry. Right. So, you know, in, in particular for AI, you know, I hear industry experts talk about that the AI is is nearly at 100% human equivalency on diagnosis already. And within two to three years, we'll be at or near 100% human equivalency on 
treatment planning as well. So that's for the robotics piece or the AI piece. And then the robotics piece, there are already robotics assisted dentistry um, procedures that have been approved by the a uh, the fda here in the united states and china is really running with it and there are completely autonomous um, robotics applications like 3d printing of teeth and then the robotics performing an implant in china that's already going on so when you couple those two things together the ai is doing the diagnosis and the treatment planning and the robotics is performing the procedure I see a lot of opportunity for companies to try to leverage that to cut costs and cut the provider out of the process. Mm -hmm. And then you throw into the mix too, just for fun, you've got you know, a company like Amazon that just re recently purchased a telehealth company, One Medical. So somebody like Amazon who looks at these issues through economies of scale and undercutting the competition's costs and those kind of things. Those just, again, those all seem like prime opportunities for people to try to utilize this technology in an illegitimate way to cut the human practitioner out. And so ultimately, I mean, ultimately, AO, we're concerned about the patients because if a patient's harmed by some AI-driven robotics type of technology, if they're harmed by it, we were talking about dental board complaints earlier, who does the patient go to for enforcement and, and recourse at that point? The dental board doesn't have jurisdiction over a software producer or... Uh, you know, a robotic manufacturer, they only have jurisdiction over live human licensees. And we want to make sure that not just orthodontic treatment, we see this as something that's going to continue to expand to affect all of dentistry, you know, general dentistry and the dental specialties. So we want to make sure that dental boards retain their ability to protect patients and to take enforcement action if they need to, if something goes wrong. Mm -hmm. Trey, thank you so much as always for joining us. It's always a packed with really good information, really important information for our listeners. If anyone has a question for you or, or needs to get in touch, what's the best way that they can reach you? Yeah, so the two, the two best ways, orthofacts.org for any of the information related to anything we're talking about, that is our one-stop shop. And then if you actually need to, to follow up with the AAO legal and advocacy team on any of these issues, advocacy at AAortho org is the email address that will reach everybody on our team and we'll get it we'll get it sent to the right person to help you out perfect thanks again trey always good to see you we will absolutely have you back and in the meantime i'm sure we'll talk with lots of questions uh from our listeners in the meantime so thanks again thanks trey thanks yep thank you all this episode is powered by ulab systems and our newest partner dental monitoring we're really pleased to be working more closely with both companies as they are the leaders in innovative orthodontic technologies, providing doctors with the tools to offer profitable treatment options to patients and as importantly, a better patient experience. We're a marketing company in today's episode, we talked a lot about direct to consumer and what could we learn from direct to consumer? And what we, what we have learned is that People choose that route not because they feel they're going to get a superior clinical experience. They choose it for two reasons primarily, convenience and cost. So one key strategy for us is to take advantage of leveraging those two areas. And um, one way to do that is 
find yourself in a line or company that has the flexibility that lets you treat some of the limited and comprehensive as well as providing some tiered pricing, which not only could lower your overhead, but could provide you with some more competitive pricing for the patients. And if you couple that with the new patient's desire for more convenience, and we do know that uh, a lot of professionals chose to go direct to consumer just because they didn't have time in the schedule to come and visit us. Um, dental monitoring has what, what I feel is the best system with um, AI to allow you to treat not only with aligners or braces, um, but, but can lower your, your, the burden on your patients. And from a marketing perspective, uh, it could be a major differentiator in, in your market. So uh, we don't wanna throw the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak. Technology is here. Um, luckily, we have Trey and the AAL looking to protect our patients and to set some guidelines. We talked about some of them uh, before, but if, if anybody wants to talk about how to leverage this in order to help grow your practice, call me. Um, Amy and I are both available. It's Amy at PPL Practice or Leon at PPL Practice. Um, so we appreciate you listening. And um, until next time, this is the um, golden age of orthodontics, right, Amy? I stole your line. Uh, tonight, you did. I but... really wanted to do it today. I just, I had my heart set on doing it. Can I do it? Can I just do yeah, it? Yeah, you do, do it. You mind? Well, I don't know. Okay. I, I mean, all right. No, no, no. All Go right. ahead. Go ahead. Do it. Do it. Go. <laughs> For forward-thinking orthodontists, it's never been a better time to be an orthodontist. We are in the golden age. Take advantage of it. Bye for now. Thank you for tuning in to the Golden Age of Orthodontics. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or visit our website at thegoldenageoforthodontics.com for direct links to both the audio and video versions of this episode.